One of the things we can praise God for in terms of his eternal reign is that he reigns over and he wars against even our sins. Uh, He is not going to finish uh, until every enemy bows beneath his feet. And really, we have a a new heaven and a new earth in which dwells righteousness. And so his process of warring against our own sins is really he's on he's for us. He's on our side. And we're going to be reading about uh, God's work of grace in David's life. First Samuel 25. And I'm going to be reading verses 32 through 35. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed is your advice, and blessed are you, because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for the privilege that we have of seeking to conform our lives to it. We pray that you would open our eyes to understand and open our hearts to embrace. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last week we saw the gracious rebuke that uh, Abigail brought to David, and today we're going to be looking at the gracious response of David to that rebuke, and I really do believe that it takes a work of God's grace uh, for any of us to respond as David did here, because our natural response is instantly to go into defending ourselves or to minimizing our sins explaining why we had to sin, we didn't have a choice about it. Um, And especially, you know, when you're being warned and you're being rebuked in front of 600 soldiers, you know, the the temptation to save face is extremely strong. And there are other things that made this really difficult work for David. Uh, Josh Billings added, it's much easier to repent of sins that we have committed than to repent of those we intend to commit. And so I see this whole... Uh, passage here is a genuine work of God's grace in the life of David. Three times he says, blessed be, blessed be, blessed be. I mean, he was so thankful to God that God had stopped him from committing uh, this sin here. And so we're going to take a look at 10 characteristics of David's gracious response to Abigail's rebuke. And the first thing that we see here is that he listened. He responded rather than just ignoring her. Uh, Take a look at uh, verse 32. It says, Then David said to Abigail, he had taken time to listen to her whole speech, and now he responds to her speech. He did not allow his pride uh, to to, to make him uh, uh, just discount what she had said, and she did not allow the fact that he did not allow the fact that she disagreed with him make him withdraw or back away from her. He could have, uh, you know, basically uh, left and slammed the door on the proverbial discussion, so to speak, 
And I think we have a tendency to do this. How many times do we men not respond graciously to a gentle, gentle rebuke from our wives? And yet we should. And we're going to be looking at why we should do so uh, in, in this sermon today. Several Proverbs speak of abusing the peacemaker, you know, beating up on them in order to justify ourselves, defend ourselves. And then there's other Proverbs that speak of a different reaction. We just don't talk to them. We, we leave. You know, we, we, we back away from them. And the Proverbs say that both of those responses are shameful. They ought not to be in a repertoire uh, of a Christian. Instead, it contrasts the wise man who listens, who considers what is being said to see what is true and what is not true, who tries to uh, respond appropriately <coughs> to those rebukes. If you just look up the word rebuke, or reproof in the concordance, see what Proverbs has to say about it, you'll get quite the education. It's an amazing uh, little study there. And so whether your personality tends towards uh, fight or towards flight, uh, when you hear a message you don't like to hear, this is definitely a message that you need to be listening to this morning. Uh, Now, what you could do this morning as you could be listening to this and be thinking of all of the other people who need to be hearing the sermon, right? Uh, it's very easy for us to discount any application that we make to ourselves. And we say, oh yeah, sure, of course, David needs to be listening to this because he was about to engage in a he and his murder. Of course he needs to listen. And we don't apply it to ourselves. But here's the point. David was blinded to how serious his sin was. He was blinded to the disastrous consequences, not only in the lives of others, but to his ruined reputation. All sin is irrational, including our sin. We tend to think our sin is not so irrational. But all sin is irrational. But when you sin in anger, you have an added dimension of irrationality uh, that uh, you've got to contend with. And we do tend to be blinded by anger and bitterness, and it's very, very important that we learn to bite our tongue like David did. Listen to the whole thing without interrupting, and then ask God, is there any truth in this criticism that is being brought to me? We need to respond rather than withdrawing. And actually, I had a teacher in seminary who I think was a wonderful, wonderful example of this. His whole policy, his whole life was, it doesn't matter how off the wall a criticism of me might be, I want to listen to even a grain of truth that is in there and benefit by changing on the things that I am doing wrong. What he was doing is he was implementing the wisdom of Proverbs, which says that we need to sift through what's being given. You know, take the good, you know, not take the bad, but sift through it. We need to be thinking through and responding to rebukes in a way where we're going to grow. That's exactly what he was doing and asking, Lord, is there any wicked way in me? This is the prayer of David in Psalm 139, and there is a lot of other Psalms that have the same attitude. But David said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He was asking God to, to help him to have an attitude to, to look at his critics and say, is there any truth in what my critics are saying? Now, if you're an angry person or you're a bitter person, you're going to have a hard time even getting past point one of my sermon this morning uh, because it's hard to receive criticism. But what should that do? 
It needs to drive you back to the cross of Christ. So the whole point of our preaching week after week is not to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but it's to go to God for grace. We cannot live the Christian life in our own strength, though we can't even come to Christ in our own strength, can we? Romans says there's none who seeks after God. Unless he draws us, John chapter 6, we don't come. So he's the one who gives us faith. He's the one that gives us repentance. He's the one that enables us to live the Christian life as we ought. So we ought not to grow discouraged. And so ask God for a breakthrough to give you a listening heart, a teachable heart, and it will spare you the bitter results of sin that it spared David in this chapter. That's point one. Second, rejoice in God's providence in bringing the rebuke and thank God for it. Ooh, this is a hard one too. (laughs) This is really hard. Verse 32 goes on to say, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. Now, exclamation marks are usually interpretations of the translator, but I think that this is an exclamation mark that is certainly uh, warranted. Uh, He was so thankful to God. Now, before we just move on and say, okay, he was thankful, I want us to stand in awe a a little bit of God's work in grace and making him thankful. This is not uh, an easy thing. When you have had a heinous sin exposed in front of 600 other men, it's going to be hard to give thanks. We don't tend to like to be embarrassed, you know, in front of uh, uh, the public, humiliated publicly. In fact, I would dare say that if you attempted to give thanks as David did here in front of those 600 men, it might stick in your craw just a little bit if God had not perfected this grace in you to a great deal as he had in the life of David. Here's uh, one of David's prayers uh, from Psalm 141, verse 5. He says, Let the righteous strike me, it shall be a kindness. And let him rebuke me, it shall be as excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it. This was David's heart. He wanted to be open to rebuke. But he likens uh, rebukes that he wanted to be open to in that chapter to a slap on the face. You get slapped on the face, what do you do immediately? Boy, you get into defensive posture, don't you? You don't like it. You're ready to fight. And David says, I want to have such a humble heart that even when it's a slap, I am ready to receive the truth that is in that, uh, that rebuke. Now, Abigail's was not a slap. Hers was such a gentle, tender uh, kind of a, a rebuke. I mean, she had such poise, uh, such, um, uh, such sensitivity that it was not a slap. But in any case, the ability to thank God for the good that he intends providentially, when he brings rebukes into your life, whether they're gentle ones, whether they're not gentle, this is one of the things that distinguished David from Saul. You read through the Psalms, you can see this distinguished David from Saul. It prepares our hearts when we thank God and we rejoice in God to respond properly without anger. In fact, whether you have an issue of bitterness, anger, whatever the thing might be, Throwing up quick thanksgiving to God, you will immediately begin to find your anger settling, and that gives you a little bit more objectivity in your conversation. Thanksgiving is a wonderful tool at all times. Third thing that we see in this passage is that David rejoiced that a faithful friend had cared enough about him and cared enough about other people to rebuke him, and he thanked her for it. Verse 33, And blessed is your advice... And blessed are you, 
This is not a polite thank you, but in their mind they're saying, no thanks. <laughs> you know, they go on. We've all had that happen to us, haven't we? They thank you for your advice, and then they go on to ignore your advice. Now, this is not that. He was rejoicing in both her and her message, both the message and the messenger. And um, the um, Puritan writer George Swinnick said this about that. Oh, that I might never be so void of love to my fallen brother as not to give him a serious reproof, nor so void of love to myself as not to receive a serious reproof. If we can learn to be thankful for both the messenger and the message of reproof that is being brought, uh, we will be in a position to be much more objective. There's something about thanksgiving that makes you look at the situation with a new perspective. And then secondly, it's much more likely that uh, this other person is going to be willing to bring a reproof to you again. And you might say, oh, good, I don't want them to bring another reproof. I'm not going to respond that way. No, you want to be rebuked like this. You do not want the rest of your life ruined through a stupid mistake that you are making, uh, like David almost ruined the rest of his life here. Okay, you don't want to be so rude, so angry in your responses to rebuke that people say, fine, I'm never going to rebuke that person again. Even if he's walking over a cliff, let him walk over a cliff and see what happens. You don't want that. You don't want to walk over a cliff. And so what I'm saying here is it was hard for Abigail to do what she did. And a thank you enabled her to respect David even more. By the way, I think this is probably one of several things that she factored into her decision-making in a few days after uh, Nabal dies as to whether she's going to marry uh, uh, David or not. She didn't have to. She was independently wealthy. She was not dependent upon anybody. But she looked at David and she saw, wow, here is a guy who cares about God's opinion far more than saving face in front of 600 men. This is a man of character. Yeah, he has his blind spots. Yeah, he has some difficulties, but this is a man who cares about God. And uh, so even David is blessed unwittingly by his willingness to respond in an appropriate way, respond graciously. The fourth thing that I see is that David went on to clearly name the sin that he was repenting of. He didn't excuse himself. He didn't try to minimize the sin, make it look less heinous than it really was. He called a spade a spade, even though I'm sure this would have been embarrassing to do so in front of those men. In verse 33, he goes on to say, "...because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed, and from avenging myself with my own hand. Now, in a moment, he's going to describe the even dirtier aspects of the sin that he was almost caught in. But right here, he repeats back the precise language that she had reproved him with, and he repents of that sin. And this is what we have uh, tried to do with our uh, children, to uh, instill a habit in them of having a thorough repentance. We wanted them to tell us precisely what it is that they repented of. When they say, please forgive me, what is it exactly that you are asking forgiveness for? We want to make sure. Have you understood the sin? Do you understand it from God's perspective? Uh, recently, some researchers at Johns Hopkins University uncovered the notes of a 19th century a neurosurgeon by the name of Harvey Cushing. Maybe some of you guys have read this. 
And they were somewhat surprised at his meticulous, extremely detailed accounting of every mistake that he had made and uh, what needed to be corrected in the, in the things that he had done. And what surprised them is that the temptation for many neurosurgeons is to cover over, uh, not admit to what uh, was going on in terms of the, the notes that people took, uh, not admit to their mistakes. He, he clearly articulated them. He tried to learn from them. And one of the people who read his manuscript said this, it is no surprise that during his lifetime, some of the most profound improvements were made in the field of neurosurgery. One of the first steps towards any improvement is to admit what needs to be improved. Now, if you will take that to the science of growing in Christ, you will be hugely benefited. And all of the saints from the past who have really grown in Christ have done this. Uh, for Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, you can think of these guys. At the end of every day, they would evaluate their day and they would say, Lord, show me. Is there anything that I need to grow in? Are there any sins? And they would describe those sins that they have tried to put off. Let me tell you, if you take that kind of an attitude, you will grow like crazy uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. But especially when you've been confronted by a sin, make sure you clearly describe what that sin is without minimization. Uh, it, it causes us to take our sins more seriously. The fifth thing that I see is that David sought to be God-centered in his confession. Look at verse 24. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back. We'll just stop there. Some confessions of sin are only enough to get people off our backs. Isn't that true? I think this is one of the, the big gripes that I have with a lot of confessions that children and adults make, uh, for that matter, is they're not thorough in their confession. Uh, they, 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 are not, they don't have a God-centered perspective, and I really strongly encourage us to bring God into the equation. There's various ways of doing it. Here, he's offering the perspective, look, before the Lord, the Lord sees what I'm saying, uh, he, he goes on. Another way of doing it is just to pray together and say, you know, I don't even see it, but I want to see it. Let's pray. And then you pray, Lord, show me. I, if there is anything wrong in me, I want to see it. I want to repent of it. But by bringing God into the equation, your mind instantly begins to think a little bit differently. Let me try to illustrate this for you. When I was a teenager, I remember one time that I was arguing with my father and uh, being kind of stubborn uh, I couldn't see that he was right and I was wrong and my dad rather than arguing with me he said well Phil before we talk about this anymore why don't we just spend some time in prayer and uh, you start and then I will finish and I remember at the time very vividly thinking this isn't fair because I knew as soon as I started praying my perspective would change and it did because as soon as I started praying I could see God looking at the situation and I started confessing my sin in my prayer, confessed it after the prayer to my dad. Now, why was it that I was blind to my sin and my wrong before that prayer? It's a little thing called self-deception. And we engage in it quite easily. But the moment we're looking very self-consciously at God in the picture, things change because even our hearts where we can deceive ourselves we realize we can't pull the wool over God's eyes and our excuses when we're bringing them before the Lord, boy, they seem lame. They might seem pretty good on a horizontal level. They seem lame uh, when we are bringing it 
on a, um, on a vertical level. And, and even my saying, this is not fair, showed the you know, sinfulness of my, of my human heart. But there is, if there's any way that you can bring God into the equation in a debate that you're having, it will help you to become more objective. It'll help you again to look at the problem through a different set of eyes. There's a third person in there now. Now, of course, David did respond more fully, which is what we tend to do. He not only acknowledged the sin that she had brought to him, he tells her more than she knew. Let's take a look at it. He tells her more than she had accused him of. He confesses um, not only, um, well, we'll look at all of the intentions, but the incredible collateral damage. Look at verse 34. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light, no males would have been left to Nabal. He's admitting that he would have been guilty not only of killing Nabal, because that's what the vengeance would be about, getting uh, even with Nabal, but that he would have been guilty of genocide. It's no wonder to me that three times he blesses the Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And verses 32 through 33, uh, when he realizes what he would have been involved in. But too many confessions that I hear are confessions that take sin too lightly and take their own personal responsibility too lightly. Well, I'm sorry that I did that, but... And then comes an explanation of why they couldn't help it. That is not a confession. Or they will say, yeah, I, I did sin uh, against you, but like Saul, they try to make the sin look small. You know, they try to minimize that sin. Or they will say, well, I'm, I'm sorry if you were offended. I hate that one. I'm sorry if you were offended. That does not go very well to the person because it's putting almost a little bit of the blame on their part. Now, it, that's okay thing to say. I'm sorry if you were offended. If you had no sin and they were the ones who should not have been offended because I'm sorry. Let me just explain that a little bit. What does I'm sorry mean? I'm sorry means simply I feel bad. That's all it means. And the person that you've sinned against says, yeah, you should feel bad, you dirty, rotten scoundrel. You know, they want you to feel bad, but there's no reconciliation. You've got the ball in your hands, and it's burning a hole in your hands, and uh, it doesn't help to say, I'm sorry. It just leaves you with that burning ball in your hands. But if instead you say, look, I'm sorry, I feel really badly about this. Please forgive me. What have you done? You've thrown the ball into their hands, and you're asking now for reconciliation. You're asking for an action on their side. And that's a very, very important uh, thing uh, to do. You are, um, you are trying to get reconciliation. And that's implied in um, verse 35, even though it's not explicitly stated. The actions, I think, all speak about that. Now, let me just make a quick explanation that in the historical accounts, it's very rare that all of a conversation is mentioned. If you look through commentaries, for example, on Acts, the series that we went through before this, uh, you'll, you'll see that they always, almost always say this speech is obviously an incredible condensation of the whole speech that went on. And I'm convinced, even though Psalm 37 was written later, 
uh, that David said a whole lot more here based on Psalm 37. That psalm is it's just uncanny in the way in which it describes what was going on here. Again, written much later, but it seems point by point to deal with a lot of the issues here. Uh, wonderful psalm. What he does is he says, I should never have gotten angry. I should never have even thought of taking vengeance into my own hands. I should have been satisfied with a little bit of food that I have and realize that God never lets the, the, the righteous go hungry. And I should not have envied the food of the, the rich man that he talks about in that psalm. And then he says, I should have just let the Lord handle the wicked. It's a wonderful psalm. So based on that, I, I'm convinced he said a lot more, but it's certainly implied in verse 35. And again, one of the gripes that I have about most confessions is they are half-hearted, half-hearted. Now let's go on to verse 35. The first part says, so David received from her hand what she had brought him. She had extended an olive branch, so to speak, and David is receiving it. Now for David to say, no, 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 I can't take that food, would have hindered the peace process. A lot of times what happens when we have been convicted of serious sin and there are affirmations that are being offered to us, hospitality or whatever, we feel so unworthy that we say, no, 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 I can't take that. I'm not worthy of that. David took it, he received it, and it became a symbol of the reconciliation. Uh, in his book on church discipline, Jay Adams uh, points out that many uh, attempted restorations of people to the church fail at precisely this point. He says there's a person who's been uh, excommunicated from the church, and the Lord then begins His discipline on their lives, and they cry uncle. They repent. They come to the church and they say, I repent. I see what I have done is wrong. Please restore me. Please lift the discipline. So the church session does that. They restore this person to the church, but they've not talked to the church about it. And other than saying, this person is now repentant and he's been restored. So the people come to this new restored individual, and they're uncomfortable. They don't want to talk about the sin because they don't want to offend that person, so they're tiptoeing around it. And that person, he can tell these guys are uncomfortable. He misinterprets it thinking, they don't like me. They hold an offense against me. And after months of this tiptoeing around, he feels so uncomfortable, he decides he's going to go to another church. He transfers to another church. And what Jay Adams points out, that should never happen. What the church should do when there is a restoration is they should do exactly like the father did with the prodigal son. Literally put on a big feast and at that feast say, you know, we've, we've all known the sins that this brother has been involved in. And the Lord was faithful. When we brought this discipline, the Lord beat up on this person so badly that he recognized God's hand in it. He came to repentance. He's repented of all of these things. And brothers and sisters, this man is not a second-class citizen. He is a full citizen in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and we want you to relate to him as if nothing has happened now. The past has been washed away, and we're going to discuss just for a little while what went on and how you should move forward. Now, everybody's on the same page. They don't need to tiptoe around this situation, and there is a full restoration. That's what should happen within the church of Jesus Christ. And so what is going on here is David is that prodigal who is going to eat the feast put on by Abigail. Okay, And remember, Abigail did not call this restitution. 
Uh, she called it a present, or literally it's a blessing, and it was. David received it as a blessing. Now, the eighth thing that I see is that David reciprocated and made it clear he wanted once again to be friends. He says, go in peace to your house. Now, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom, and it not only refers to an inward peace, but it refers to God's blessing and his prosperity on everything that you have. So this means when David says this, I no longer have ill will to you and to your household. Whereas before I was ready to curse you, I was ready to kill uh, the people in your household. I have no ill will toward you. I am at peace with you. And honestly, this is where we elders would hope that all efforts at repentance would go. Instead, what sometimes happens is a person says, yeah, I forgive you. But you can tell there's continued bitterness and continued anger, resentment that is held. There's no longer any fellowship. They're not willing to say, I wish you shalom in every area. Though they're civil with each other, there is a continuing iciness between those two people. And in his wonderful book on peacemaking, Ken Sandy, it's called The Peacemaker. Uh, if you don't have that in your home, buy it. You guys have to read it. You absolutely, it's a must. This is, this is kindergarten stuff, okay? Even though most people say, whoa, that's heavy. But this is stuff that every Christian needs to know. But anyway, Ken Sandy said, when there has been repentance, there not only should be full restoration, it should actually be better than it was before. Why? Because both of those parties have been driven deeper into the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It really should be better than it was before. Now, obviously, David can't be reconciled to Nabal. Why? Because Nabal won't admit to his sin. He has not confessed his sin. He has not repented of his sin. There can be no reconciliation with Nabal until he does those things. But with Abigail and the rest of the household, David's at peace with them, and he wants them to be feeling at peace as well. He pronounces his shalom upon them. So it's a beautiful, beautiful statement. Abigail has reached out her hand of friendship. David reaches out his right hand of friendship as well. The next step in David's repentance was to commit himself to following through on this repentance. Verse 35 goes on to say, See, I have heeded your voice. Now, the ESV translates it, I have obeyed your voice. But however you translate it, David was committed to following through with action. His repentance was not mere words. He would do what she asked. Now, with our children... We've had them practice right there and then. So if they've sinned in conversation with rude words, uh, after they've confessed their sin, we've tried to train our kids to, to now go back. We'd tell them, okay, let's start this conversation where it went bad, and we want to hear you saying it the right way this time. Okay, so there's immediate follow-through. Or if they had damaged one of their kids' toys, we immediately require restitution. Or if um, they've done something mean to their brother or sister, what we've asked them to do is strategize. What are some kind things that you can now do to your brother or to your, uh, to your sister? And so we, we try to have this follow-through in their lives. Without a commitment to follow through with actions, repentance is hollow. And this is why John the Baptist cried out, Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And I think in Psalm 37, David clearly shows that he had follow-through. 
He really did what he said he was going to do. Now, the final thing that David did was to affirm the fact that he respected Abigail. I have heeded your voice and respected your person. Now, some have said that this is an acknowledgement she had the office of a prophetess. I think that's a little bit far-fetched there. There may be other indications she was, but this one I think is a little bit hard. Others believe it was simply an affirmation that he respected her very much for what she had done. Either way, it doesn't matter, the same point is made. And I think it's good, after you've had a tense confrontation, to affirm respect for the person who has confronted you. It's a tough job to bring a rebuke. It is hard. And to say, thank you for bringing that to my attention. I respect you very much for having the courage to do that. goes a long ways in normalizing uh, the relationships. And so what David is doing in this whole passage, he's not only living his life quorum Deo, before the face of God, but he's also modeling for others what it means to live the Christian life. And I think it's a a remarkable uh, testimony to others. I have noticed unbelievers who have stood in awe and amazement at an Abigail who has brought a gentle, tender, well-reasoned, gracious rebuke, you know, that's given with bearing. And they say, wow, this person is under incredible stress. If I was them, I would have blown my gasket. I would have been all over them. And look at the gentleness. Look at the kindness. But I've also seen unbelievers stand in on amazement at Christians who have responded to rebukes, sometimes even harsh rebukes, with graciousness and with humility and openness, and they've fully repented of their sins. That's not something that comes naturally. And even though every aspect of our lives should be a light that glorifies God, uh, let's make a commitment to making sure that our repentance does so as well. Some people might think, oh, that's just such a little area of our living our lives before Christ. No, and before the world. You might be surprised at the kind of impact that your kinds of reproofs and your kinds of responses to reproof might bring. I don't think it's by accident that it was the Beatitudes that immediately preceded the verse that says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The kind of mourning that the Beatitudes talked about is a mourning only God can produce. And it's a mourning over sin that glorifies God. It's letting your light so shine before men. And all of the rest of the Beatitudes, the meekness, the hungering and thirsting after righteousness, the mercy, the peacemaking, those are responses that are letting your light shine before God. Why? Because only God could produce that. And so, brothers and sisters, I want you to evaluate the responses you have given in the past to rebukes that have been brought to you, even if they're only halfway right or, you know, a quarter way right. What are your responses to those rebukes? And I call upon you to claim the supernatural grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and let your light shine before men in this whole area of repentance. Amen.